Well, it's our privilege tonight to turn to Daniel. We're in Daniel chapter 5, looking at Belshazzar and his final moments left. It is interesting at this point in Daniel's account, when we turn to this chapter, there are many historical accounts that begin to explain the details of these events. Secular history gives further details to the events that unfold at this time. In fact, we can date the exact day of the events here of Daniel chapter 5. It was on October 12, 539 B.C. The details are recorded in... Nabarabi Chronicles, and in those, in that chronicle, there is further explanation of all of the historical events that unfolded here. What we have here is divine history, history told from God's vantage point, well, God's assessment of the situation. Secular historians have given their assessments, and those can even be read still today and be found. We come to this most important chapter because this is the center, the high point, the most important lesson that God wanted the Gentile nations to know. I told you when we started Daniel that Daniel chapter 1 was written in Hebrew. Daniel chapter 2 through chapter 7 was written in Aramaic, the language of the day. And then chapters 8 through the end is written in Hebrew again. God starts by addressing the Hebrews. He then goes to the Gentile nations to address them. And then he returns back to the Jews to let the Jews know that we have, he has a plan for them, a plan for the nation. And in the style of writing, as Daniel lays this out, J- Daniel chapter 2 parallels Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 3 parallels Daniel chapter 6. And then Daniel chapter 4 and 5 parallel each other. You have the humbling of a king in Daniel chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar is brought low. You have the humbling of a nation and a king in Daniel chapter 5 as Belshazzar comes to face the judgment of God. This center, chapters 4 and 5, is the high point of what is known in Hebrew as a chiastic structure, pointing all straight to this, these two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5. God is going to get the attention of the Gentile nations and let the Gentile nations know he is in control. He directs, he orchestrates, he moves, he accomplishes his good purposes, he allows nations to rise, and he takes nations out, he accomplishes his good purposes, and no one can thwart his hands. Nebuchadnezzar learned that lesson the hard way, and now Belshazzar is about to learn the same lesson in much swifter demonstrations of God's marvelous power. So here in Daniel 5, 1 through 31, we're going to walk our way through this narrative and along the way just have five points that kind of navigate us through this narrative. The first point is this, the setting of Belshazzar's final moments. Notice verse 1 through 4, he lays this out. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. And he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. And when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which was in Jerusalem, in order that the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. This is the establishing of the setting of the event. To understand what is taking place here, there are a few details that I need to bring to your attention. Between the end of chapter 4, verse 37, and 5, chapter one, or 5 and verse 1, 23 years has passed. A considerable amount of time has gone on. Nebuchadnezzar had died 23 years from that time. 
at least 23 years is probably uh, uh, almost 30 years of time from chapter 4 through chapter 5. At this point, uh, Belshazzar is now mentioned. But Belshazzar here is not the son of Nebuchadnezzar. Rather, he is the grandson. The word here in the Aramaic, the Aramaic didn't have a word for grandson. Literally, it means the descendant of. Belshazzar is the descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. And so while it could be translated your father only in the sense that he is ultimately from the line of Nebuchadnezzar, it actually would be best translated as grandson or descendant of. He is a physical descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, this Belshazzar, related to him. Just to give you a little bit of the family tree so you understood what took place, after the death of Nebuchadnezzar, his son took over. His son was named Amel Marduk. Amel Marduk was the actual son of Nebuchadnezzar who took over and ruled for Nebuchadnezzar upon Nebuchadnezzar's death. And the scriptures have a name for him. His name is Evil Merodach. Not exactly the best name that you want to give your son, Evil Merodach. In fact, when Jill and I were naming kids, we never chose that name. We are just like staying away from that one. 2 Kings chapter 25 and verse 27 speaks of this king, King Evil Merodach. He was the king of Babylon. And in that year when he took over as king, he released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. He demonstrated favor to the Israelites when he took over as king. That was in his first year of rule. Jeremiah gives further details of that. In Jeremiah chapter 52, verses 31 through 34, Jeremiah says it like this. Now it came about in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, in the 12th month of the 12th, 25th of the month, that evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, showed favor to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and brought him out of prison. Verse 32 says, he spoke kindly to him and set his throne above the thrones of the kings who were with him in Babylon. This son of Nebuchadnezzar showed favor to Jehoiakim, showed favor to the Israelite king, demonstrating a commitment, a love for him. Gave him allowance, it says in verse 34, he gave him an allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king of Babylon, a daily portion all the days of his life until the day of his death. He was richly treated by this Babylonian king. But evil Marduk only ruled for four years. He was assassinated by Neraglisser, the king who became the next king of Babylon. Neraglisser was... Uh, the son-in-law or the brother-in-law of evil Merodach. Neraglisser didn't have a birthright to the throne, but he married in to the family. And he married the sister of evil Merodach and committed a treasonous act and killed the then king. And normally at that time, of course, if there was some kind of treason like that, he wouldn't have a right to the throne, but because he was married to the king's sister, he now had the right to take the throne, and he took over. He is spoken of in the scriptures as well. Jeremiah 39 and verse 3 speaks of him, and in that verse he is called Nergal Sherezer. He was seen that he was an official in the Babylonian army, a high-ranking official. In fact, he was there when Jerusalem was captured. He was one of the officials that spoke with the, the Israelites. He knew Nebuchadnezzar personally was part of that group. Thus, likely, that's why he was married to the king's daughter, Nebuchadnezzar's daughter. He had ruled for a period of time. He ruled for four years, and then he died he ruled from 560 to 556 B.C. And then his son took over, Labashi Marduk was his son's name, and his son ruled for two months. But then his son was killed. His son was killed by a group of conspirators who then named a man by the name of Nabonidus who took over as king. Nabonidus was one of these conspirators. He was one of the guys who teamed up to kill Labashi Marduk, 
And he was now named king of Babylon. This king then lived for, or ruled for 17 years. Final 17 years of the Babylonian existence, Nabonidus ruled. He married into the line. He either married one of Nebuchadnezzar's widows or he married one of Nebuchadnezzar's daughters. But he married into the royal line, took that right. And he had a son. His son was Belshazzar. Belshazzar was a physical descendant of Nebuchadnezzar. He was the son of Nabonidus, and he has, again, his mom was either a former wife or a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. So he had a right to the throne. What's interesting about Nabonidus' rule is that while Nabonidus ruled in Babylon for 17 years, 10 of it he left, and he left Belshazzar in charge. So while Belshazzar was the king, officially, he was technically the second in charge. It was Nabonidus who was the one who was the true ruler, but he is out of town, either on military conquests, or there is debate as well that he might have had some political and religious run-ins. He had actually was committed to the god, the Babylonian god, Sin, rather than the other Babylonian god, Marduk. And so the religious leaders who were devoted to Marduk would, you know, had political conflict with Nabonidus, and so Nabonidus fled out of town and spent his time in other places. And while he was gone, while he was out of town, it fell to Belshazzar to run the kingdom. In fact, it was for the longest time, liberals had denied that uh, Belshazzar was even the king. There was no reference to him historically. And then as we started to do various archaeological digs, details have been found where there are inscriptions with Belshazzar being referred to as the king. That Nebuchadnezzar had given him the right to rule in his departure. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar was still the primary king in the time of Daniel chapter 5 here. He just wasn't in town. He was somewhere else. In fact, he was up in Sippar, which is seven miles north of Babylon, and he just got defeated there, and he was fleeing away from Darius' army. In fact, history tells us 17 days after the events here in October 29, 539, Nabonidus turned himself over, walking into Babylon with olive branches, submitting himself to Darius, and officially handing over resignation that the Babylon nation had crumbled. This time, then, historical events is that Nabonidus is the king, but he is out of town. The co ruler, Belshazzar, his son, the one who had the right to the throne is the one who is the recognized king of Babylon. And this is, again, the vantage point from which Daniel writes. He doesn't write from the secular vantage point. If you were to write it from maybe the Medes and the Persian vantage point, and you were writing a legal document from their vantage point, you would recognize Nabonidus as the king and as Belshazzar as a supporter. Here, he's writing it from the Babylonian vantage point. And if you're in the city of Babylon, you would recognize Belshazzar was your king. I mean, after all, 10 years he's been sitting there in the throne ruling. Dad has not been around. He is the de facto king, even if he isn't officially the one recognized there. Again, continuing within this, Belshazzar being the king was recognized as number two, which becomes significant later when he wants an interpretation of the details of the scribe of the hand there, and he offers up somebody who has the right to be the third in charge, which would be after Nabonidus, after Belshazzar, the next person who gave the interpretation would be third in charge of the kingdom. Also, as an important detail, letting, setting up the details here, is that at this moment in history, Babylon is surrounded by the Medes and the Persians. Babylon is about to be crushed. 
In the Daniel chapter 2 vision, the head of gold is about to be chopped off, is about to be done away with. The next major nation is about to rise up. The armies of the Medes and the Persians have been capturing Babylonian cities. And as I stated, they captured already the, the town north of Babylon, seven miles north. And they had an army, the Medes and the Persians had an army led by a general whose name was Ugbaru. Ugbaru is uh, known by a few different names in, his, in various historians' writings, but that's the best one I can pronounce, so I'm going with that one. The general is a very shrewd man, this general. He actually, historians tell us as well, he died just the next month later. He died a month after these events of Daniel chapter 5. After the city had been turned over, after everything had taken place, he died in, in November. Ugbaru was a general of Darius, and he had conquered Sippar, and he had conquered Akkad, and he was advancing on the city of Babylon, even during the writing of Daniel chapter 5 here. Nebuchadnezzar had fled where he was in Sippar. He had fled that region. And so more than likely, the Babylonians already knew that Dad had been conquered. Nebuchadnezzar has been conquered. The Medes and the Persians are coming. And here, Belshazzar has tightened up his city, has pulled up the gates. He is now in hiding, pretty much. You wouldn't exactly have gotten that impression here in Daniel chapter 5, and yet that's exactly what was playing out historically in these events. So they're under attack. Maybe at the time Belshazzar had heard of his father's loss, Maybe he heard about the advancing of the Persian army. Maybe he had heard about the conquest of Darius by his general Ugbaru. Whatever the case, as we note, when we come to Daniel chapter 5 here, none of those worries seem to be on Belshazzar's mind. We don't know why, and when we come to this point, why Belshazzar is throwing this particular party. We don't know if it's because, as some historians suggested, that he was throwing a party for himself because he had built a new hall for himself in the royal palace. Nor do we understand it could have been a holiday. I take the idea that it was possibly a holiday because everyone within Babylon was committed to this ceremony. It wasn't just the religious leaders. It was from the gate workers on through. All of the city was in a state of interaction, of partying. Babylon, at this point, had a place of security for the king, Belshazzar. It's believed, again, that Babylon had enough resources on its own to last many years under siege. I mean, if you're a traveling army that was going to come and take over the city, it would be behoovent on you to quickly conquer that city because you didn't have a lot of resources. Babylon had plenty of resources within itself. You had the Euphrates River running right through it. They had the ability to, again, have fresh water regularly. They had plenty of food. They had walls that are 80 feet thick. Every 60 feet on top of that wall was a, a tower where archers would be presented. They were well fortified. And it's believed that they had, just from the resources within the city, they could last for over 20 plus years. So they could ride this out. If Belshazzar was under the threat of loss, he figured he could write out anything the Medes and the Persians can do. So what do you do when you hear that your father the king has been conquered, you have the rule in Babylon, and you've tightened, you shut the gates and locked everything up? What do you do? Throw a party for yourself, apparently. That was the plan. And the whole city was in the celebration. And as the text indicates, those are the background details. Now let's start looking at the text for us. The text indicates this, this was an exclusive party. Notice verse 1 again. The king held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles. 
And he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. And verse 2 indicates when Belshazzar tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring the gold and the silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple, which is in Jerusalem. All of the official details came out. There was the wine was broad. He had the official tasting. He liked it. And now he is unfolding the wine to the rest of the guests. And all who are there are the thousand nobles. They're there. Verse 3 indicates the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. One commentator said this. He offers another possible explanation for the feast. He believes that when Nabonidus was defeated at Sippar to the north, his subsequent flight would have been two days previous to that. It was known in Babylon So Belshazzar moved quickly to proclaim himself as king and the first ruler of the empire, the de facto king. No longer under his dad's rule, no longer second place, it's possible that he was pushing himself to be the number one guy. That's why the thousand nobles were there. We're not quite sure, but that's quite, that's possible. Belshazzar then, as the text indicates here, commits the great act of idolatry. It says in verse 2 there that he called and ordered the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem. He called for those vessels to come out and be used in this royal party. Party again with a thousand nobles, wives, concubines, upwards of 3,000 people there. Music, drinking, immorality all around. This was a Bacchanal feast. Now, just use the term. You can go look it up, parents, and see the idea. Uh, make sure your safe version is on in your browser. As the uh, investigate, the Bacchanal feast was filled with immorality, drunkenness, And that was taking place at this point. And when they are in this drunken party, they then bring out the the instruments that were in the temple. Now notice, this is 63 years later. From the time that Nebuchadnezzar had gone into Jerusalem, had conquered Jerusalem, had taken the vessels out of the temple and brought them back to Babylon, these things sat gaining dust for 63 years and now brought out of the treasury comes these vessels to be used in this party. That Belshazzar is going to use the, the conquered vessels from his grandfather's conquest to demonstrate that they are, again, demonstrate his power, his authority. I guess maybe the jab, the knife, is there in verse 4. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. They used the holy vessels of God to be part of their drunken feast, And they didn't even give glory to God. They gave glory to false gods. So that's the setting. Now, the sign of God's disapproval, verses 5 and 6. Notice what it says there. Suddenly, the fingers of a man's hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face grew pale, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. This is the disapproval of God for the scene. I mean, you can see in the midst of this lavish party in this large hall comes this hand that starts to write on the wall. To set the scene for you, archaeologists have found these large rooms in the Babylonian palace. And these large rooms had, again, white plaster on the walls. And there were no windows. These are large rooms, plastered walls. And there would be lamps all around the room. These lamps would provide light. You're not filling a room like this. If the room wasn't bright like this, you'd be getting light from, again, these lampstands from strategically placed around the room. 
You would likely have certain areas of that room well lit and other areas of the room darker for lesser activities. You have, again, this room filled with drinking and other things going on, music being played. And in fact, as we notice the detail there in verse 5, the king already had given orders for the wine to be spread. He, he tasted the drink here, but verse 5 indicates that suddenly this hand appeared and emerged behind the king, behind the lampstand, and the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Basically, this hand appeared directly behind the king, behind the lampstand that was right by the king. This hand, this hand could have written anywhere in that large room. It went right to the center of the room, right to where the king was, right to the lampstand, right there in public, and started writing. In fact, it was significant that it was a hand that starts writing because Daniel makes a point of it. Notice down in verse 23 and verse 24, Daniel makes a point about this. He says, but you've exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze and of iron and wood and stone, which you do not see, or which do not see, hear, or understand. But here's the key. But the God in whose hand are your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. Daniel makes a direct connection. Why is it a hand? You know, he didn't need. He could have just had a pen come from heaven and start writing. The, the words could have just started appearing there. God actually brought the manifestation of a hand as an illustration. God's hand holds your life, and your life is now about to be taken from you. That's why he says in verse 24, Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. This is divine judgment, back into verse 5 and 6. This is divine judgment. This wasn't a vision in the king's mind. This wasn't like Nebuchadnezzar seeing a dream. This was a physical manifestation. This was a, a physical event. Everybody in the room can see what was taking place. They certainly saw the final result, what was written. The king's response would be natural in verse 6. He was scared to death. The king's face grew pale, his thoughts alarmed him, his hip joints went slack, and his knees began knocking together. There was, there's ever been a time a drunk man immediately got sober is right here. Adrenaline rush of terror. Some commentators commented that he couldn't even control himself, possibly wet himself. His knees knocking together would be the attempt to try to hold in his bladder. There's an attempt to keep some kind of order. Whatever the case, whether he was so afraid he lost his balance and was moving about, or whether he was losing bodily functions, the fact is he was absolutely terrified by what he just saw, and you can understand why. Hands writing on the wall right behind you and writing out these words. In fact, we live in a world of visual effects. Whatever we can imagine, we can kind of put it on the screen and we can imagine it. We can go watch it on a big screen TV and kind of immerse ourselves in it. We can live in our imagination. This was a time in which none of that would happen. So it would be absolutely terrifying and awe-inspiring. And that's exactly what took place here. King's face was pale and his thoughts alarmed him. And again, it was obvious, and this is what I want to point out as observation in the midst of it. God brought his judgment, and he didn't bring his judgment in some dark corner in the room, which would have been sufficient. He brought his judgment right to the brightest section, right to the front, forefront of the hall, right in the light. He brought his judgment so all would see immediately his rule, his judgment. When God brings his judgment, it would be public, it would be evident, it would be obvious, it will be unstoppable, and his hand will make it clear. Leads us to the third point, the seeking of answers, verses 7 through 12. Notice verse 7 and 8 to start. The king called aloud, 
to bring in the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. And the king spoke and said to the wise men of Babylon, Any man who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me will be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. And to stop right there here, again, the classic response that has always taken place when mysterious things have happened. The king called all of his, his spiritual advisors, the ones who were accustomed to interpreting dreams and visions and giving explanation, and they did exactly what they always did, failed. Could give no answer. Demonstrated how inept they were, how they were spiritual phonies. They had no answers, no clarity, no understanding, no wisdom, no insight, and no help. They couldn't explain the events. They couldn't explain what took place. They couldn't give any answers to, to what was happening there, even with all of these great royal rewards. The rewards of garments, the rewards of money, the rewards of honor and authority. As the text indicates there, he had the opportunity to be the third ruler in the kingdom. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar is gone, so now you're number two. I mean, this was the great authority. All this, they couldn't give an answer. These are the great men, again, just as we saw in chapter 2 of, of Daniel's prophecy here. Here again, chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, or here in 5, the same thing. These nobles couldn't give an answer. Notice verse 9. And 10, in response to that, the king Belshazzar was greatly alarmed. And his face grew even paler, and his nobles were perplexed. And the queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and of his nobles. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face to be pale. Very natural response when they couldn't get an answer from their best and wisest men was to be even more terrified for what took place. The queen here, by the way, is likely Belshazzar's mother. This would be the queen mother. After all, his wives were already there. And concubines and others, this is likely Nabonidus' wife, the mother of Belshazzar, the daughter of Nebuchadnezzar. She was the one who entered in to give the counsel. She is the one to talk about what happened in her father's kingdom. She is the one to tell about the successes of her father's past kingdom. So, of course, she is the one who can enter into this room and give voice to what's happening in this banquet hall. Certainly, only the queen mother would be the one who would have the kind of authority to speak up at an event like this and not immediately be cast out. Of course... This would have been such a spectacle because of the king's fear and difficulties. This would have been something of a tabloid kind of event. And notice what she says in verses 11 and 12. She says, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father illumination, insight, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because of an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of enigmas, and solving of difficult problems which were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Now, get this. Daniel at this point is likely in his 80s, over 80 year, years old. He's an oxygenarian at this point. He is strolling in the 80-year-old the man who has been out of influence for over 21 years, a man who is walking in the last time that he likely had any kind of prominence was under Amel Marduk in 560 B.C. This is 539 B.C., 21 years later. Daniel at this point is probably thinking, I have been forgotten. 
but he's called upon. And Belshazzar had to be introduced to Belteshazzar. He had to be informed. So Daniel, the 80-year-old plus prophet, comes marching in to give an answer for God. I love that. I love it for many reasons, because I think about this as a pastor There is no expiration on the self-life of a man of God. Somebody who speaks for God, who knows the ways of God, who speaks the truth, God may call at any time to stand up and give a voice. The truth is always honored. The truth is always relevant. The truth is always important. And even 21 years of being relegated to the sidelines, here comes Daniel. Again, you know nothing of his stature or his makeup. But 80 years of just sitting around waiting, he comes in and gives a voice. Still around, still part of the kingdom, still part of God's work, still ministering, still doing his work, still working at the king's request, but now has been forgotten, but remembered by one. He was remembered by the queen mother who says of this Daniel, he was the chief of the magicians, the conjurers. He under, she remembered his primary role And she remembered that he had an extraordinary spirit of knowledge and insight able to interpret dreams. And she remembered him by his Hebrew name, Daniel, and by his Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. And she was obviously keenly aware of Daniel's reputation. It tells me this, again, when somebody, when the Lord wants to use somebody, he can hide them in obscurity when he wants to and bring them out when he desires. It only takes one person to remember, one person to acknowledge, and the Lord would use the one to draw out and to demonstrate his work. The man of God would be patient, trusting the Lord that at the right time, God will draw the attention. Could have been easy for Daniel here to think that his days of usefulness were done. Could have been easy for Daniel to believe that 20 plus years since the king had died and nobody's calling upon him that he was over, just ministered to a couple of people on the side. And yet here he is called right into prominence. Which leads to the fourth point. Service to the king, verse 19, 13 through 29. Then Daniel, verse 13, was brought in before the king. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that you have a spirit of the gods in you, and that illumination and insight and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Just now the wise men and the conjurers were brought in before me that they might read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you were able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now if you were able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. By this point, Daniel's got to be thinking, I've heard this before. I have been in this situation a few times, and I know what is about to come. This would have been, again, an expected introduction from the king. First of all, he indicates here in this introduction, he, had, he didn't know who Daniel was. He had to ask him, are you this Daniel? He knew of him, but he didn't know the man. Of course, this indicates that Daniel was pushed off into some area. He was no longer in the prominent role that he used to have when he was under Nebuchadnezzar. Only the queen mother had remembered the past details. This new generation had forgotten Daniel altogether. They didn't have any experience with them. They weren't invested with them. There was only the stories. But the same offer was offered to Daniel that was given to everyone else. You give me the answer, I will give you prominence. I'll give you great rewards. Tell me what I want and you'll be rewarded handsomely. But Daniel doesn't give the expected answer. Notice verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to somebody else. However, I will read the inscription to the king 
and make the interpretation known to him. That's a pretty direct response, and it has been debated if the tone by which Daniel was saying this. Was Daniel kind of given hostile words back to him? Keep your gifts. I'm not going to be swayed by them. Keep your reward. Give it to somebody else. It's likely that Daniel was saying to the king at this moment in time, King, I want to be impartial. I'm not doing this for gifts. I'm a messenger of God. I'm coming to give you God's message. I'm not here to be swayed by the rewards or swayed by what you're offering. I'm here to, again, be God's messenger and communicate what God would want me to communicate. Again, I don't, knowing Daniel's uh, attitude and character through chapters 1 through chapter 4, the love and respect that he demonstrated even to those in authority, the likelihood that this was an act of honor and reverence, not an act of hostility towards Belshazzar. The idea is you don't owe me anything to do the Lord's work. I am only communicating his very message to you. We do the work for his glory And the Lord decides how to honor. Notice the response, verse 18 and 19, from Daniel. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, grandeur, glory, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar, your father. And because of the grandeur which he bestowed on him, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive, and whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. This statement here is a statement of the absolute power and authority that Nebuchadnezzar had. Nobody could stop him. He had a right over life and death for everyone within his kingdom of the whole known world at that time, and there was no one who could stop him. And Nebuchadnezzar says, or Daniel says of this Nebuchadnezzar, he had ultimate rule and authority. Notice verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit became so proud that he behaved arrogantly, he was deposed from his royal throne and his glory was given away from him. And he was also driven away from mankind, and his heart was made like that of beasts, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like the cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind, and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. Which Daniel demonstrates here, Your father, Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather, who had all of this authority, all of this power, was humbled to the point where he was eating grass out in the fields for seven years. He had to go live among the wild beasts. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he came to the point where he recognized the glory of the Most High. God humbled him. Who are you, Junior? That's the idea. Who are you, Belshazzar? Who doesn't, you're number two in this kingdom. You're number two now. You're still far behind Nebuchadnezzar. And the God of heaven brought your grandfather low. The God of heaven, who has all power in his hand, is the one who humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He was able to do it simply because Nebuchadnezzar took credit for the work that God had done. Notice verse 22. Yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart even though you knew all this. But you have exalted yourself against the Lord of heaven and they have brought the vessels of his house before you and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and of bronze and of iron and of wood and stone, which do not see, hear, or understand, but the God in whose hands your life breath and your ways you have not glorified. This is the the rebuke of Belshazzar. If Nebuchadnezzar, the great king, was humbled, what's going to happen to you, Belshazzar? The one who is, again, second in control. The one who is not even the full right to the throne. 
though you are a descendant of Nebuchadnezzar, you mock God, you mocked God with your actions, you mock God with this party, you mock God by using his vessels uh, for dishonorable use. You knew the whole story about what took place to Nebuchadnezzar and it didn't even sway you. You mistreated the things of God, used them for dishonorable mentions. And then Daniel makes clear the judgment to come for the pride, verse 24 through 27. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Now, this is the inscription that was written out. Mene, mene, tekel, you farson. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Peres, your kingdom has been divided and given over to the Medes and the Persians. Divine pronouncement of the judgment. I mean, the judgment has come. The judgment was obvious. It was obvious by the visible hand. It was obvious by the etch marks in the wall. It is now obvious by the prophet Daniel who made the message clear. The days of Belshazzar's rule are over. They're over because he had been found wanting. Even his life had been measured out and he had fallen short. Back then, the Medes and the Persians were going to come in and take over. Notice what's interesting about this. Daniel is giving this explanation, not because he's looking around at the uh, historical details that are taking place. Certainly, Daniel could have heard the news about the Medes and the Persian armies having conquered the northern cities. He could have heard the news of the advancing army that was coming upon Babylon. He could have looked around and kind of read the tea leaves and then offered judgment. But that's not what Daniel does here. Daniel looks at the inscription, interprets the inscription. He only speaks God's message. He's not inserting his insights. I think this is important. Because many today come out turning to Bible prophecy to throw out judgments because they're tired of what they see around. So many self-proclaimed prophets on YouTube and etc., writing books and other things, talking about judgment to come, and all they're doing is just revealing their own angst and hatred towards what's taking place. God spoke. God brought this judgment. Daniel communicated God's message. That's all. He wasn't giving his opinion, his own interpretation of the events. He's explaining what God's pronouncement was. So, again, God spoke, and Daniel communicated what it is that God has spoke. He was being faithful to the mandate to communicate God's very message. No more, no less. That is, again, the man of God. He communicates God's message, no more, no less. Notice verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler of the kingdom, the shortest lasting rule because that night it was over. Again, the honor that Daniel didn't seek, he got. He came to serve God, and God honored him. Which leads to the last point, the sentence of death, verse 30 and 31. It says, that same night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was slain. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. History tells us that the general of Darius' army redirected the waters of the Euphrates River to some channels, some construction channels, lowering the Euphrates River's water level, dropping it low enough that soldiers could walk in under the city gates that were guarding the waterway. They could walk in, take over the guards at the gates, open up the gates, and all the army was able to walk in, and they conquered Babylon, and no blood was shed. Babylon, the great city with great mighty fortresses, the great walls with all its power and might was taken and no blood was shed in the process. Immediate 
total judgment. That very night, it wasn't like Nebuchadnezzar who saw his dream a year later, the events came out, seven years humbling, he was restored, returned. God gave Nebuchadnezzar plenty of time for repentance. Belshazzar had that night, and then he died. As I said, Darius officially takes over 17 days later when Nabonidus submits and surrenders to Babylon. So many lessons to be learned from this marvelous text. And just to give you just a few lessons, thinking about the implications for us, here would be the lessons. You can begin to see the demise, the signs of a demise of a nation. What would those signs be? Well, a leadership who forgets their origin would be a sign of demise. The increase of drunkenness and revelry will be the sign of a demise. Pride aimed at the Most High God, not just pride, but pride particularly aimed at the Most High God is a sign of a demise of a nation. Self-reliance, overconfidence, greater signs. These are just a few of the signs of a nation that's resisting the work of God or a people that's resisting God when they're exalting themselves, filled with entertainment and self-revelry, aimed to undo God and to replace God and overconfidence in themselves. They are heading towards destruction. What would the people of God be? What should they do? Well, we should guard our hearts walking in humility. We should remember the God we worship and not depart from him. We should keep ourselves from ungodly influences so we're not led by anything but by the Spirit of God. We should depend on God and his strength, and we should realize at all times we're in regular need of God's grace and mercy. This is how the righteous walk. Otherwise, be warned, God is opposed to the proud, that gives grace to the humble. That's the end of Daniel chapter 5. Next week, we'll pick up Daniel chapter 6. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this marvelous story and the details that unfold. For us, as we move from narrative, we move into even historical accounts and all of it pieces together with such precision, demonstrating exactly what you had said Even as you had prophesied to Nebuchadnezzar of the various Gentile nations that would come, you fulfilled them with exacting detail, kind of scary detail that have caused many to think that these were things written later. To know that these things were written well before they took place is a grand demonstration of your marvelous work. We just pray that as we come to texts like this and we see all the historical accounts, that the response on our part would be greater confidence in you, greater confidence in your work, less self-reliance and more reliance upon you and your directing. We know not of how you tend to use us as your people, but at any point in time, you may call out the man of God to use him to minister your truth, and so may we always be ready, always prepared, knowing that there is no shelf life to the truth, for the truth is eternal Your word is truth. It sanctifies our hearts and minds. It is always relevant. It is always useful. Across generations, across cultures, across time. And so we pray, Father, help sanctify our hearts and minds with your truth at all times. And guard us from the evil one. It's in your blessed name we pray. Amen.